Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. We now have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Willosophy. If you'd like to contribute to that, that helps the podcast come out every week. Our aim for this year is one episode per week. And uh, if you can contribute and help us put it out, uh, that means that everybody who's involved in the podcast gets paid. Well, everybody but me, but that's okay. Uh, all the people who help me put the podcast out every week get paid, and that's the important thing. So uh, podcast Mike, who books all the guests and helps me put it all together, uh, Mike Hallow, US producer, and of course, the brilliant James Fosdyke, who does all the original art. Today's guest is an absolute cracker. Her name is Jane Gilmore. Now, Jane Gilmore has written this brilliant book called Fixed It. You might have seen her stuff online. Um, it's a wonderful book about the media, how it represents women in the media. Uh, it's incredibly thought-provoking, brilliantly written. Anyone who's interested in uh, feminism, uh, anyone who's interested in the media and the way the media works, um, I highly recommend her book, Fixed It. Uh, it is out now. So that is Jane Gilmore, um, and uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. I, oh, I mentioned this, Gruen, my TV show, if you're in Australia, is uh, back uh, Well, in a couple of weeks couple of weeks you will be able to watch uh, the new series of Gruen so um, if you could check that on the ABC or ABC iView um, then uh, that'd be great too all right enjoy this episode cheers Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And every week uh, here at Philosophy HQ, what we do is we invite someone on the show that uh, is either connected to my life or is someone that I am fascinated by or the uh, topic they're talking about is something that I'm fascinated by. Today's guest is somebody that uh, fits into the category of somebody that I don't know well, somebody that I've admired from their writing and work online. And we've certainly met before, but uh, somebody that I'm looking forward to get to know through this podcast, hopefully as much as the audience uh, gets to know them uh, during the podcast. And I always like these episodes because I'm never sure exactly where they're going to go and what we're going to find out. Uh, so this is how the this is how the show starts. I do this uh, every week. I'm saying that uh, for new audience, I guess, but also for our guests. Uh, I ask the guests who they are. So um, who are you? So my name's Jane Gilmore. Um, I'm just about to publish a book next week. I'm a journalist, um, a feminist, a mother, um, slightly too heavy drinker. I don't know. How much more do you need to know? Uh, you answer the question however <laughs> you want to answer the question. If you just then talked for the next 90 minutes, I wouldn't have had to do anything. It would have been fine. Um, what do you classify as being slightly too heavy drinker, by the um, way? I, I believe the last guideline said something like more than two drinks in a session or something. They're just cutting it right back. So... Yeah, I definitely do more than two drinks in a session. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I feel like that's the guidelines fault, not your fault. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, yeah. I like that one. Yeah. I've, Will Anderson said it's okay for me to drink too much. I am certainly cool. not the person you should be going for for that advice, but I've actually been having a break from it for a while. And that's been something that I have not done much in my life. I've never been a subscriber to the idea of like, you know, a dry July or an October or those sort of things, you know. Yeah, I've, I've never done it either. But um, when I went to, when I wrote the book, I went down to Phillip Island for a month um, last summer and just spent an entire month down there, did not drink, didn't go out and didn't speak to anybody, no TV, no Wi-Fi, no streaming, anything. I just wrote for like six or seven hours a day, got up every morning, went for a swim, came home and ate vegetables. It was the healthiest I think I have ever been in my life. I mean, it sounds like you took in, in some ways a holiday from real life. 
to it focus was, on the yeah. book. So yeah. t- tell me a little bit about that. Tell me a little bit about why you decided to do it in that way. And also, you know, what you learned out of that experience of not getting on the internet and eating, you know, properly <laughs> and not, not drinking. Um, I learned how easily I really am distracted. That that was the whole reason I went down there was that put anything else in front of me and, you know, I'll write for a little bit and then go, oh, what's happening on Facebook? Or, hey, there's, you know, everybody's going out for a barbecue. I'll just do a little bit of work and then I'll join them and I'll come back to it later. And, of course, you never do. Oh, look, there's Netflix or there's a new episode of this or a new whatever of that. So being, I had to get away from it all, to get away from all my friends. Luckily, my kids are old enough to look after themselves, mostly. So I just picked up my dog and my coffee machine and my laptop and piled it all into the car and went down to Phillip Island for a month. And it was um, it was surprising. I learned that it was surprisingly easy for me to not drink for a month. I didn't miss it, didn't want it. Um, how much better you feel when you don't? Wow, that was a lot. Sleeping really well and waking up really clear-headed. That was a real eye-opener. Um, I... Um the one thing that I have learned about myself uh, since I, I've been having a break from drinking is that I apparently am the only person in the entire world who gives up drinking quite heavily and puts on weight. <laughs> like everybody else I've ever heard from is like, oh, the weight just fell off me. Whereas I'm the opposite because clearly my body has been supplementing my desire mm-hmm. for the sugars. Yeah. And so it, I'm not drinking, but I must be eating a lot more sugar because I've put on like, I think since I've stopped drinking, I've put on 10 kilos. Well, I was kind of cross because I went down there and I suddenly all this healthy living and lots of exercise and walking and swimming every day and and no booze. And I came back and put my jeans on and went, nothing changed. What was the point of that? Well, I suppose I came back with a book. So that was my the point of that. My unhealthy but... lifestyle was keeping me trim. <laughs> I think I need to put out a new uh, diet program. <laughs> it's like, oh, the Heart Foundation, yeah. I'd love you. Live badly and lose weight. <laughs> I want that to, wow, you can be my lifestyle guru. Exactly. You know what's great for uh, stripping off the weight? Not sleeping all weekend. (laughs) Oh, it's amazing how many extra hours in the day you have to walk from club to club. You have really missed your true calling, Will. You're supposed to be a life coach. So did you, while you were off the internet, because this is another one that's interesting to Mm. me, is particularly for someone like you who has done a lot of your work of late, you know, in mm. that in that realm, you know, and particularly when we get to talking about the book, like some of the themes through the book have certainly been mm. espoused and uh, promulgated throughout the internet first and foremost. Well, my whole career is based on social media. I would not have a career as a journalist, even the book aside, I would not have a career as a journalist without social media. That was that was how I got my start. That was how I made my connections. That was how I built an audience. That was that's how you keep up with what everybody's talking about, what they already know, what they don't know. That's that my whole career would not exist without social media. So when you live in that world, uh, and then you go and have a break from social media. So how long was your break when you were writing? A month. So one month without it. And did you go cold Turkey or was there like an, yeah, so none at all. Oh, I think there was once or twice when I did just, um, like I'd get to the end of the day and think, okay, I'll just, jump in and see what's going on and and give people a bit of an update just so they don't think I died. Um, But I think there was maybe two or three times while I was away and that was it. And I just, I would go all day, like I'd go out for walks and I wouldn't take my phone with me. And that was weird. I kind of felt like I was walking along half naked, but no, the phone was just at home, didn't need it. Uh, I went to get some uh, coffees before this this chat that we were having and uh, I left my phone in the studio here. And the reason is that partly I've been trying to do the same thing in a, in a sustainable way. So I've taken all the social media apps off my phone. 
So I have none of them on my phone anymore. Twitter, Facebook, all those wow. sort of things are off my phone. So if I need to, you know, spend some time on those things, I have to sit down in front of the computer and actually. So why did do you do it. that? Uh, well, because it was getting too much of my attention. Oh, okay. You know? And yeah. I've put my phone on grayscale, they call it, which is just black and white, so that you don't have all those colors just like, yeah. you know, going, hey, look at me. This is yeah, what's like going a slot on. machine. Yeah. Exactly. And what I've found is that it then enables me to do things like leave my phone in the studio because <laughs> you just don't have that attachment to your mm. phone in the way that you had previously. Yeah, it's I know it's a weird thing because there are some times when I found it almost life-saving and like I said it's it's built my career. I've I've made and kept some really really good friends because of it, but there is also just all the the bullshit and the the brain drain. So there's a balance to it, I think. Did you feel like your brain worked differently when you weren't uh you know uh, constantly checking in with the attention economy? It took a while to adjust, so I think the first week, I was almost distracted by not being distracted. I, it took a while to get into that rhythm of just really writing and thinking properly without going, oh, what's going on over there? What's going on over there? Um, but once once I got past that first week and got into that groove, it was, it was like my thoughts got longer, like time slowed down and everything just got calmer and easier. And then coming back to Melbourne was was quite a shock because, like I said, I took my dog down there, and we were going like walking around the streets, and it's a little country town once all the tourists go, so people smile and say hello when you walk past them in the street. And I live in St Kilda, so I was like, "What? What do you want?" And then I got used to it, and then I got back to St Kilda and walked my dog and smiled and said hello at people, and they were looking at me, going, "What? What do you want?" So it was it was just a completely different way of living that that was really really attractive, but also, by the end of it, I, there's only so long you can spend talking to your dog, and most of the time he's the best conversationalist I know. But it, but after a while, no, I need I need a response. I need some actual interaction because no social media, no phone calls, no visitors, no anything for a month. I was getting a little loopy by the end of it, so I'm glad which, to come back. Which of those was quickest? Which of the things was quickest uh, integrated back into your lifestyle? So, did you find that you adopted social media? more slowly when you came back to it or was it like like you'd never been away and you went back to using it in the way you had before you'd had your break or um, uh, was it a gradual ease back into? Honestly, I don't think I've ever gone back to it the way I did before that break. So that was January last year and I'm still not on it nearly as much as I was before that break. So it was, I still use it and I still, um, I still enjoy it sometimes, but that constant checking in, checking up, following conversations, getting into stuff all the time, that I haven't gone back to at all and I don't miss it. I, it, it's hard because this is an anecdotal, uh, I've not, you know, I've not done this in a, in a way that you could say is scientific. I'm purely just giving my anecdotal impressions of mm -hmm. what it's been like for me not using those social media apps as uh, frequently. And it, it seems like a rare coincidence that I have been also the happiest I've been in years not using them. So I think that there is at least, I'm not saying it's the only thing mm. that has led to me yeah. feeling happier, but things in my life are actually as shit as they were. <laughs> like, you know, like if you realistically look, I'm still dealing with that shit thing yeah. and I'm still dealing with that shit thing, but I'm dealing with them both so much better. And I, at least give some of that over to the fact that I'm constantly not being caught up in other people's bullshit and agitation and whatever online. Um, there's certainly that, I think, and it's also the, um, you know, with whatever shit you're dealing with, if you can actually give it your concentration, like what I was talking about of that month of once I got out of that sort of 
bits and pieces thinking into that much longer and slower thinking when you're trying to work out your shit. If you can do it in that way instead of off on, off on, off on, just like a flickering neon light sometimes I felt like my brain was getting. And actually being able to have those longer, slower thoughts about whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's personal or professional or even what to have for dinner tonight, it's it's easier to work out what it is that you really want and feel like you're acting on what you really want instead of just whatever happens to be flashing in front of you. Okay, so that's the downside. But you've hinted about the upside of social media as oh, well. Yeah, huge. And I think you're a good person to talk about it because as you said, like, you know, a lot of uh, your career and mm-hmm. you know what has led to this book in a mm-hmm. lot of ways has been generated out of the world of social media and the access that social media has given us to voices that weren't being represented mm. in the mainstream otherwise. And this is when you then go to the upside of social media, the amount of guests that I've had on this podcast, the amount of ideas that I have in my head and notions that I now am aware of that have come purely because I got to you know see mm. those writers on Twitter or I got to follow their work on mm. Facebook or I got to watch that video that they did on Instagram that led me to their web page that led me to the idea mm. that otherwise I wouldn't have seen in the mainstream media. So can you talk to me a little about the idea of how social media has opened it up uh, opened the world up to hearing a, a greater diversity of voices? Well, I mean certainly for me it was key because um I got into journalism by starting my own magazine. Um, I don't know if I, you, I told you the story about the, the thing we you started t- in the you pub. Haven't, you haven't told the audience of this okay. podcast the story. Audience so. of this podcast, my journalism career started in a pub. Um, it was a local bar. They were running a, I think it was an air guitar competition. And um, the drinks afterwards, we were saying, you know, so many people didn't make it. We, we need a write-up. It turned into this let's have the, a bar newsletter idea. Surprisingly enough, when we woke up the next day, we went ahead with it anyway. That was how it started. The first one was a double-sided A4 page, chock full of typos and really bad writing. Mm. And from there, we just grew it and grew it. And over, and that was all because of social media outside the pubs. Um, so then it went into a local paper and then Melbourne-based. And that was when we started using Twitter and Facebook to spread it. And from there, it grew. We had international subscribers. It was a full glossy magazine for the last few months of its life. And we had subscribers all over Australia. We were getting writers from all over Australia and all of that was social media because we didn't have any money for marketing. It was a startup and that happened by accident. It was never planned. So there was no money. There was no capital. There was, we both had other jobs. So it was just a mess that went through, but a mess that we were dedicated to. And so all our sub- subscribers and all our followers and all our writers was all from social media. And some of those people I'm still friends with now. So one of them still sends me a bottle of wine on my birthday every year. And I have I think I've met him once. He lives in Gippsland. But he started following me on social media when we started the Tribune and has been following me every ever since. Still sends me a bottle of wine on my birthday every year. And I just sent him a copy of the book. And that's somebody that I have spoken to in real life once. But I met him on social media. And the writers that we got for the Tribune, who are now friends of mine, some of them had never been published before. And some of them are now have careers as journalists and that's amazing to watch so it's there are some really really bad things about social media um, and particularly if you're a woman and particularly if you're writing about the things that I write about but for me it's more positive than negative but it's like all things 
within reason. If you become obsessive about it, if you do it all the time, then anything, I don't care how good it is, if you become obsessive about going to the gym, it can be bad for you. Within With a balance, you know, the right balance between time that you spend with it and time that you spend with the people in your actual life, I think it can be a really useful thing. Uh, I believe we can take it as a given that uh, women on the internet, particularly women on the internet who are talking about issues that uh, some people find provocative or offensive or whatever outside their comfort zone uh, get a harder time than men i'm not even going to debate whether that's the case (laughs) i'm going to put on the record and just say that is the case yeah uh so i don't want to hear from anybody (laughs) i don't want to see the links to your articles i've had clem ford on the podcast Mm -hmm. i understand how this shit goes down uh let's just for the sake of clarity uh you know uh understand that women in those situations are getting a much harder time and i have never done a podcast uh, that has got uh, the trolley reaction as when I had mm. Clem on the podcast. Yep. So th- there are some people who work in that space who get an unfair and disproportionate yes. uh, reaction to what it is that they write. I'm, I'm interested in what topics um, tend to get people riled up the most. Is there a particular, <laughs> is there particular things that if you go to them, you, you're yep. like, well, this is yep. um, red, red rag to a bull. So there's uh, the gender pay gap. Um, men's violence against women and climate change used to be one, but not so much anymore because even the trolls have given up on that one, apart from a few of the worst of them. Um, and uh, Mark Latham, because I've actually got him muted, but I can tell when he said something about me because I suddenly go, what's all this shit coming in from Twitter? And Oh, fucking Latham's going off again. All right, fine. Uh, but, you know, apart from that, uh, and it's... Mark Latham is like, yeah, but he was potentially Prime Minister of Australia at one stage. Well, see, the thing about Mark Latham is when he was close to being Prime Minister, I don't know if you remember him back then, but I he do. was one of the leading intellectual lights of the left. Mm. You know, he was going to relight... In the footsteps of Gough Whitlam yeah. and he was going to be the next great yeah. intellectual and he wrote all these books about policy. And, and if you go back th- and read those books now, they are still good. Mm. They stand the test of time and they are still intelligent. He had something that I don't think we've seen in Australian politics for years. He had a vision for Australia and where he wanted it to go. And then, I don't know, something happened. Acquired brain injury, something, I don't know, but something happened to him where that man is not who he is now. No, no. I think that the real Mark Latham has died and been replaced by some (laughs) right-wing troll robot. Yeah, he is... uh, and loves like because if I used to occasionally would make a Mark Latham joke, but he has the thinnest skin of anybody in the entire world, and he just does not understand how jokes work. No, so, I'm imagining he's not one of your core audience, though, so I don't. No, too but much risk but here. I am certainly one of the people on his list of <laughs> um, you know people that he likes to go after, and after a while, I just like you muted him. Mm. And uh, I did notice that he's like, once you just ignore him, eventually you just move yeah. on to somebody who doesn't ignore him because everything that Mark Latham does is some constant yeah. plea for relevance. And so if eventually you ignore him, he's just like, well, this is not what I need from this. Yeah, exactly. Like, Pay attention to me. Yeah. Pay and attention I, to honestly, me. Honestly, I just think he's funny. So yeah. I just make jokes back at him. So he doesn't tend to go after me terribly much anymore, <laughs> which is which is good. But it's the, the flying monkeys when he sends his flying monkeys yeah. after you. And that's when you get the sudden upsurge of, of shit. And uh, so, some people get really upset by it. Mm. it. For some reason, it has never actually particularly bothered me. And so why do you think that is? Because I was that was the next question I was going to ask is how you handle it and what your reaction to it is. Um, sometimes it's funny. 
sometimes it's just irritating because it, it's waste time because you've just got to clear all the shit out yeah. of your inbox. And um, it sometimes means probably that you don't get to see messages from yeah. people who want to say something positive or interesting because you've decided to ignore all your messages because yeah. you just posted something about well, I actually turned the gender the, pay gap or yeah, something. Yeah, I actually turned the messages off on my um, professional page on Facebook because it, that was just stupid. I wasn't seeing anybody's messages because I was just ignoring the, all of them. Um, but, you know, people that need to get in touch with me can and the rest of them, if they're going to make that much of an effort, whatever. But no, it's never, they've never scared me or upset me or hurt my feelings. Um, like I said, sometimes it's funny. I still talk about the guy that told me on Twitter once that I was nothing but a communist in panties. And I'm like, damn, I can't sing because that would be such a good band name. <laughs> Communist in panties. Yeah. I mean, it would be a good quote for the front cover of the book. <laughs> a non-Twitter, <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> uh, so why, what's the main uh, point of contention if you talk gender pay gap? Because it, I, I find it hard to understand what the logic is there. Is it is it people who don't believe that it's still mm-hmm. a case or is there people that... No, they don't think it's ever been the case. Women earn less money because they choose to. Because, of course, that's what we want, Will. Mm. We don't want money. We want to be off nurturing people and being nice yeah. and smelling pretty. Well, I mean, you're allowed to nurture people and smell nice <laughs> and earn money, though, aren't you? No, apparently I you have to choose. I personally would like to nurture people <laughs> and I also like to smell nice and I would like to earn money. You also, you're a man, you're allowed to do that. Except the smelling nice mm. thing, I think maybe that's not very masculine. Yeah. I don't know. I can't remember the man don't, rules don't anymore. You, don't you bloody toxic masculinity <laughs> in me, Jane. I, I can smell nice if I want to smell nice. <laughs> Uh, so, um, okay. So gender pay gap. So mostly it's denying that it exists mm. or it's, um, excusing it or it's saying, but what about all the men that die at work? And it's the, the water battery on whatever you're talking about. If you're talking about the gender pay gap, it's that if you're talking about violence, it's what about the male victims? What about the women that do this? Whatever it is you're talking about, it's water battery and not all men. And by the way, to anybody that wants to get in touch with, I know not all men. I really don't need to hear it again. The, those ones that I find are just um, a waste of time because it's mm. they're not actually arguing the points or having a discussion. They're, what, they're, what anyone that's saying not all men is really saying is, but not me. You're saying this about men and that makes me feel like you're, you walked up to me and said, sir, you are a rapist. And of course that's not what anybody's saying, but it, it's taken personally. And I, I think... As far as I can tell. But also tell. there is an element of that that people don't know. Like as in like the men, we have to acknowledge that when that is said, of course you're not saying to me, sir, you are a rapist. But at the same time, you are saying to me, I believe, sir, based on the evidence that is out there, I can't be 100% sure one way or the other of whether you're a rapist or not. Yes, well, that's <laughs> definitely true. So if you're walking behind me on a dark street and you're a tall, big it's guy, tell, you should be crossing the road. It's hard to tell me in my beanie. Yeah. And my big jacket walking home late at night. Yeah. I'm six foot. Like anyone who knows me knows mm. that I have bad hips and, <laughs> and, and my capacity to run and do anything would be. But th- th- a stranger doesn't know that. No, exactly. A stranger who's been conditioned that a big guy, you know, in a beanie, you know, a awkwardly threat. shuffling down the street yeah. is a threat. I'm not offended by the idea mm. that someone would find that threatening. And the, the, I mean, the thing is also that because I've been dealing with this for so long and, and I have my piles and piles of spreadsheets that I actually know the guy, the guy walking behind you at night is not actually the threat that, that no. it's, it, that's the lightning strike. It's horrendous when it happens, mm. but you are more, far more likely to die safely in a, in a car driving home than you are to be killed by a, a man you don't know walking home. Mm. 
So the the stats on this are the same. Like it's facts are not persuasive. So you can go and tell women this over and over again. You are not in danger from strange men on the street. Driving home in your car, you are more likely to die. Statistically, far more likely to die. But that's not how it feels. Women feel far more threatened by the stranger walking behind them on the street. And, you know, the most likely place for a woman to be killed by a man is in her own home by a man who claims to love her at about 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. So the things that we are afraid of are not necessarily the things that we should be afraid of. I understand the reasons for it. And it's sort of, you know, we're talking before about philosophy. It's something that, that I've really changed a lot recently. I think I've become de-radicalized. I used to be a lot more black and white about this stuff and now I'm seeing a lot more of the, the grey areas in the middle and the nuances and thinking that part of the problem is we're never talking about those grey areas. That Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Um, well, say the, the men's violence against women stuff. So we're just talking about that, that we don't talk about the men that do this as if they are people. They are cartoon character evil monsters you know, what you were saying, it's it's the, the big guy in a beanie shuffling, shuffling along in a dark street or the guy that does actually beat his wife is a recognisably evil monster. So you say to guys, well, this could be your friend. And they're like, no, none of my friends would do that because they think, well, a guy who does that to his wife, I would know. And the thing we know about the guys that do that to their wife is, no, you wouldn't because they are, they can be a good friend. They can even be a good person. They, there is so much complexity to it. So this idea that they're just this two-dimensional, all-evil, irredeemable person, I think damages everybody because it means that women won't be believed because here's this lovely guy with a great sense of humour who can kick a football that she's trying to say this about and men don't know how to deal with it in each other because they go, but he's my mate. He would never do that. It's And when you can say to people, It's yes, very easy if the person doing this feels like the big bad. Yeah. If it feels like they're all evil, it gives us permission. Mm. And this is one of the things that I've been really conscious of and trying to talk about a lot, but also trying to genuinely rig rigorously examine my own life for, which mm. is it's very easy for you to say, I am not that sort of person and I would never do that. Mm. However, you've got to, I think if we're really going to change, we've got to get out of that conversation and get into the, but what about that one time you got mm. more drunk than you should have got and made a real dickhead of yourself and made yeah. a bunch of people feel uncomfortable? That's not who you are, but it happened. Yeah. And why did that happen? And how did you put yourself in that situation? And what are you going to do about the fact that you, you can't put yourself in yeah. that situation again? And what are you going to do with the fact that, you but know, you have you, done it before. You've done it. Yeah. Like, and that, and that, you know, and, and I think it's good to be able to say to somebody, look, he's not like that normally. This was his one thing, but he's not like that normally. This is his one time. Doesn't mean that you get forgiveness for that one time. It means that you have to say to that person, you put yourself in a situation where you shouldn't have, you know, behaved like that. What are you mm. going to do about that? And you, also, you don't know that it was just that one time well, and you're talking about somebody else. Well, absolutely. Talking you about yourself, no, you do. But, I mean, that is, this again is where you go back to the nuance. So that is a really difficult thing to do, to examine your own behavior and say, wow, I have done things that make me really uncomfortable, that the fact that I did them. But we all have, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, so of course, I, that's, everybody that's why has. I don't think, like, I mean... I, I know what you're saying, absolutely, mm. that we do find that an uncomfortable mm. thing. Yeah. But if so we I could all start difficult. with the idea of us all going, we're all fucked up and we've all <laughs> fucked up things. Um, yeah, I think there's a difference between what I would call an actual fuck up. Like I, I got drunk and did something 
that I, you know, talking about yourself, that I don't normally do. I was, for whatever reason, something else was going on. I reacted in a way that I wouldn't normally and I hurt someone. So the you would hope, what, what we would all like to think we would do the next day is go, wow, that was really bad and go back and apologize. We'd all like to believe that's the case. But often, and we know that we've all, I think I've done it and we know people that do it where they wake up the next day and go either A, I don't remember or B, I didn't do that. And that's when you start thinking, is this a one-of? Okay, let's see. Does it happen again? Then it's twice. Three times is a pattern. And how do you deal with that? Because I've seen that in my friendship group of somebody who, he was a friend of mine. He was a good friend of mine. And, and we had a lot in common. He was interesting. I really liked him. But then he was doing this thing. And we get to three times. It's now a pattern. How do you reconcile this good friend of mine with this person that's now done this thing to three different people and that's not okay. And and then you get into the complexities of saying, okay, well, if we can get him to admit it and apologize and say he'll change, what do you do then? Is there a consequence for doing something like that? And the consequence is ostracism. So we're not going into the criminal stuff. We're just going social consequences. You've done this now three times. Dude, not okay. Booted. Are they booted forever? That's it. You're never allowed back in. Because if we're saying to men, well, we want you to change, how can you say that and then say, well, I don't care if you've changed, you're not coming back. So it gets into some really complex stuff and managing that and managing who believes it and who feels guilty about it and watching somebody being ostracized is awful. It's one of the worst things you can do to people. So how long do you do it for and who gets to say? It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because Mm. I've seen it. And you certainly see it around show business. You know, we have this discussion around show business. Mm. Like, you know, is there a path back for redemption for, you know, some people? What, you know, who who gets a path back? Who doesn't get a path back? How mm. should that path back, you know, happen? You know, just to use, I, I, I use that example more because it's one that we can all comfortably yeah. sort of look yeah. at and go, all yeah. right, does Louis CK get a path back? And if you offer an idea of how that path might look, you go, well, yeah, there was a path back to redemption. It doesn't seem like he's chosen to no. pursue that path, but perhaps there was, you know, an apology, an acknowledgement of the hurt that he caused in the first place, some sort of actual reparation to what it was, some time taken out, you mm. know, an appropriate amount of time, some real understanding, you know, from him to the people that he understood yeah. the hurt that he caused. And then proving and then that he's actually going to be different. Proving that he was had yeah. changed and he was different. And you and you think, okay. And he kind of did none of those no. things. No. No. Which so, was the bit that yes. surprised me the most. Like, Really? It surprised you? Well. Because I was expecting it. Were you? So tell yeah. me why. Because you could, because I could, well, I don't know him in person, but I was, I remember watching the apology. Well, I'm interested yeah. in but why you think it, that. It started with the the alleged apology. It was one of the best examples of sorry, not sorry I've seen since the last time I read the Courier Mail. So it, tell me, tell I, I understand what you mean, but tell the oh, audience so, what you mean by sorry, not um, sorry. Sorry, not sorry is is kind of a, um, a phrase that means um, I'm doing the apology that says, I'm sorry if you were offended, making it your problem that you were offended, not the fact that I said something. And I would also like you to know all the excuses that I have, so therefore you should just shut up about it because you keep if you keep talking about it, I will feel bad. So now I've put the obligation on you by apologising to you can't talk about it anymore because I've already said I'm sorry. Why are you still bringing it up? That's not an apology. That's a form of silencing somebody who's been hurt. So an actual apology is I recognise I have done the wrong thing. I understand the effect that had on you. 
I, I feel genuine remorse and empathy for what this has done to you. I am promising as best I can to try and change. But anyone that says, I will never, ever make another mistake ever again for the rest of my life. I, my hand to God, that's it. I'm done. Clearly talking bullshit because, as you said, we're all fucked up and everybody makes mistakes. That recognition of what you can do, of what you have done, I think that's the kind of thing that makes a real apology. And that's whether it's you know professional to their audience or person to person. People can tell when you really mean something, when you are genuinely apologizing for something or just want everyone to shut up so that things can go back to normal. You know, you can tell. And there's a, a authenticity to a real apology that does actually make you feel better and makes you feel like you've been heard and a rejection of you to a, a sorry, not sorry apology, which is just shut up. Uh, I ask people in this podcast whether they have a philosophy. Um, we've got pretty naturally to... Uh, being able to talk about what's in the book and, and why you wrote this book. And I, I want to talk about that, but um, I should ask you if you have a philosophy first and then we can frame, you know, the rest of the conversation, at least ha me having asked the question that is the one thing that I promised people on the podcast. <laughs> so uh, do you have a philosophy, a life philosophy, a work philosophy, a love philosophy? It can be a philosophy about anything, but do you have one? Um, I think it was a bit what we were talking, well, it's mostly what we were talking about before, the, um, the, See the grey areas, see the complexities that don't ever think that anything is simple or just one thing. No one person is all good or all bad. No one thing is all good or all bad. There is no, no, yeah, all, it's all the middle ground. It's see all the, the, where the stuff is difficult. And, you know, even what we were just talking about with the, the, somebody's ostracized, when do we let them back in? That's what, where you really get into the complexities of life is understanding the bits that are difficult and that that's where it's about where you make your life choices in those difficult bits. It, it's also the places where change is made. Yes, it is. Is in those difficult bits. Yes. Because if you don't offer someone, and by the way, I'm not for a minute suggesting everybody deserves a path to the redemption. There are people who do things, you know, so bad that, you know, society makes a choice that they don't, mm -hmm. they don't get a path to the redemption, you know, but however, I do can I can see the argument at the very least that if you don't show people that there is a path to the redemption, what they end up doing is instead doubling down the other way. I think there's I don't think that I would get now, I would have said this differently maybe even a year ago, but I think now I would not say nobody ever gets a path to redemption. I might say there are some people that are just too unsafe to have in society, but I having made the choice that we have to lock them up, I think within that frame, they still have a path to redemption. And you can't ever say that somebody is completely beyond hope. You can say the things they have done are so revolting and appalling that I find them too confronting to be around. But I don't think anyone's ever beyond hope. Well, I've already thrown out my Bill Cosby today, <laughs> so I'm sorry. I've already made that decision. And that's a fair call. <laughs> the, the weight of evidence is in on yes. that one. I've, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, okay. So I'm very interested in this because I think that politically – this is a world that we live in as well. We live in this world of, um, you know, the confirmation bias bubbles and, you know, people being able to hear the own arguments they want to hear in their own. And it's also worlds. the polarization of it too, that it, um, and, you know, nostalgia is a great thing where you can think, oh, back in my young days, it wasn't like this. And I think it probably was, but it feels now that, that political arguments and social arguments have become more polarized, that there is nowhere in the difficult middle bits to have those discussions. It's either, you know, with the, the violence against women thing, it's either all men are terrible and should all be put in an iron box and fired into the sun 
or all feminists are awful and they just hate men and want them all to die. But you know, both those things obviously are not true. The, the real discussion is in the difficult middle bits, but we don't ever get there. And there's that old argument, oh, social media is to blame for this, which I don't, I don't think it entirely is. I think um, it is far more difficult to have a nuanced, complex discussion online than it is face-to-face. And because so many of our discussions are online, even people who could understand those difficult, complex bits in the middle often aren't able to articulate them. So what you see is a polarised argument and then people get get frustrated and, and upset and, oh, well, you're just an idiot and I'm not going to talk to idiots like you anymore. So online, I think it gets more and more polarised. But offline conversations and even you know in the media, and I've done this um, on the drum and various radio, radio programs, where you're actually talking person to person, you can get into those complex bits, and I think people actually really appreciate it. Some some places, I, I would I, I would offer the well, Alan Jones is not the place to yes. go for it, no. But I would also <laughs> offer the not a counter argument because I'm I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm just you know uh, more that I see a lot of casting on television panel shows etc. Mm-hmm. Now where instead of them wanting to muck around in the grey area and you know recognise the fact that two people on different sides of an argument can still have a lot of, you know, mm. they might have the same you know, interests in common, they just you know, have a different way of looking at it and a different way they think they can achieve those things. Mm. That What ends up happening is they cast someone at the extreme, yeah. both extremes of the argument, and they yell at each other and you never get into the grey areas. And there's never an acknowledgement that there is grey areas. There's someone with a black and white argument over here and there's someone with a black and white argument over here and then they just yell at each other for half an hour. Yeah, and it's just a stage cage match. Yeah. Yeah. Look, that's definitely the case, but um, so I'm thinking particularly of Q and A when you're talking about that because that was what I was thinking. Yes, of I too. figured not, it might not be. exclusively, but <laughs> but that yeah, that, that's a, a main one that comes example. to mind. Yeah, but the thing is that there have been those episodes where they haven't got politicians on, just stay on message, stay on message, or the stage cage match where they've got people on to discuss ideas. And that's suddenly when you get everybody going, oh, that was actually a good one, and I don't watch it anymore because those cage matches are stupid and boring. But I will go and argue that one because that one was interesting. Now I don't know the numbers, and I'd be, but I would be really keen to see them because the again going back to social media, the social media discussions I see about this looks like there's far more interest on in Q and A when it does have those kind of sticky middle discussions. But obviously the ABC is looking at their own numbers; they would know. So maybe the reason they keep doing the cage match is that's actually what people read. You know, everybody says likes to claim they read The Guardian, but actually they're reading about Beyonce on news.com. So maybe it's the same thing, that people say they want the more complex discussions, but actually that's not what they're actually doing. Well, you've got a quite a unique insight into the media because this is really, you know, what at least the prism, uh, you know, that your your book is mm-hmm. you know, viewed through. So uh, tell people a little bit about – and I have a bit of a policy I was saying to you beforehand that I – hate that idea of getting somebody on the podcast and then we talk all about everything that's in the book and then nobody wants to yep. read the book. So, um, but I think it's important to, you know, tell people what the book is and, yep. and what it's about and why this is an area that you wanted to explore in the first and place. And that you should definitely read the book. Yes. Well, um, this, is, this is my point. <laughs> the very act of, you know, getting you on in the first place is me saying to the audience, <laughs> I believe you should buy this book. They will have already heard an intro where I would have told them all about the book and told okay, them to guys, buy the book. Listen to Will, buy the book. Many of um, those, many of the people probably skipped that intro <laughs> I do tend to ramble on a little bit. However, buy the yeah. book. Definitely buy the book. Please buy the book. My kids yes. like to eat. Um, so the the book started from a moment of frustration on a tram 
a um, couple of years back, uh, four years ago now, I think, um, I'd been writing a bit about the way the media reported on men's violence against women and could not cut through, couldn't get any engagement, couldn't really get people to understand it. Um, and I was sitting on the tram one day and I was just flipping through my phone and this headline came up. I think it was something like Townsville police say selfie led to stabbing murder. And I looked at it and thought, I've taken a few selfies. Does that mean I'm going to be murdered or does it mean I'm going to commit murder? Because obviously selfies don't cause murder. So I pulled up one of those um, those apps where you're supposed to like redo photos to make yourself look 10 years younger and 10 kilos lighter. And I just put a red line through the headline and said, man's decision to murder a woman leads to stabbing murder and threw it out on Twitter. And then I got distracted by something else. I think a friend got on the tram or something and I wasn't paying attention, got home, did a few other things, picked up my phone, turned it back on again, and it literally just went in my hands. Just it had gone off. And I thought, well, there you go. The picture's worth a thousand words. Actually, genuinely a thousand word articles. I couldn't do this and one picture I could. So it went from there. I mean, it is a simple moment of, I mean, as someone who has a journalism degree uh, like I do, who has spent uh, the majority of my life examining media, you know, like when we were doing the glass house, you know, a lot mm. of that was, you know, we were, it was a constant examination of the media grew into a certain extent, still has that. My day to day has a lot mm. of me being very across what's happening in the media. It is amazing when you, I guess like the, you know, raising the temperature in the water and, mm -hmm. you know, boiling the frog, how, when you see those things every day, mm -hmm. how little your brain stops yep. to say, hang on. This is the wrong way of expressing that. And when you see somebody just correct it like that and immediately get to the point of just going, hang on, mm. how simply, like you said, that one mm. thing makes that whole point. Yeah, it was, I was amazed by how simple the concept was and how obvious it made it to everybody else that I, I usually do when I post them, I do little explainers Um because there's also legal reasons and, again, you know, I was saying I'm getting a lot more into the nuances and the, the sticky bits in the middle that I have a lot more sympathy for the journalists involved than I did when I first started this project and um, probably because I've done a lot more journalism myself since then and I know how much pressure they're under that they're trying to do five times as much work with half as many resources and no backup and... Of course, everybody's rushing. The, the days where we used to have a journalist who would go to court and spend all day, every day in court and have a really, really good understanding of what was going on in those courts. Now you've got a journalist who might have to write an entertainment article one day and a business article the next day and then go off and do a court report the day after that. And that level of expertise and understanding is gone. And then they'd go back and they'd have a sub-editor going through every single word in their article and checking the headline and checking the facts and a photographer and then an editor and the number of people that would see each piece before it went out. And now online, yeah, there was that um, poor young girl from Yahoo who got done for contempt of court because there was no one between her court report and publishing on Yahoo. Now, that to me is unconscionable. And yes, she maybe she should have known better, but they certainly, and I think as the judge said in that case, they should not have had her going from court report to publication with no one in the middle to check. Well, there's a, a that's why there was a range of checks and balances in there in the first place. Mm. Is that people, but but you, they're running out of money, so right. they're, it's not a, that they don't want to. You tell ask any journalist about it. You know, would you like a sub editor back? And they'll be going, Oh my god, yes, please. Because and, and how much of it is directly uh, due to their capacity that now 
I mean, in the old days, you write your court report and it goes in the newspaper with the sport report and mm. it goes in the newspaper with the cartoon. And there was no necessarily, like, it, and then they just judged how many newspapers got yeah. sold. Yeah, so there's, the, the, I mean, so much has changed in that. And in digital media now, they know what articles are being read, but it's also changed the way we read. So one of the reasons that I concentrate on headlines and almost never actually do the body of the article is I think it's something like 80% of the headlines we see we don't click on. So all we see is the headline and, you know, what you were saying about, oh, I, the the um, selfie leads to stabbing murder and it wouldn't occur to you to think, well, hang on, how did a selfie cause murder? That we see them flow past all the time and you don't even pay attention to them. You don't click on them because you think, oh, that's not relevant or I'm not interested or actually I just don't even want to read that. But it kind of sloshes around in the back of your brain and you don't even know it's there. But it's just reinforcing all those myths about um Men don't choose violence, they just snap and they do it because women are provoking them in some way. And um, women lie about rape all the time. All these myths that we have proven are not true, but they're there. And those headlines just constantly reinforce them. And I don't think that editors under pressure, as I was just saying, are, are sitting somewhere stroking a white cat and going, how can we excuse all the evil that men do in the world? Obviously, they're not. I think they're writing them because they've got those same biases that they don't even know are there and so they write that everybody who writes you write what you think and you can see it in people who are trying to write something that's not what they think you can see it it feels constrained like what we were saying about the apologies before and that's what i think is coming out in those headlines so often uh so two things one is that i don't think there's ever been a data a greater discrepancy between headlines and the article <laughs> I, I think that we live in a world now because of the attention mm. economy that so often the headlines even out of your area yeah. yep are, are often completely misleading to yep. what the actual article is about it's trying to bring people in and mm. i think that's actually a stupid move because what you want to do if you are a publication is bring people in and have them read your stuff and go oh that's good i'll come mm. back but if you drag them in with a headline that's completely misleading and they're like but what am I, this is not what I wanted to read or this is not telling me what I thought it was going to tell me or it's not actually telling me anything at all or it's not telling me anything interesting. So I'm not going to bother clicking on the headlines again because I know they lie to me. And then the second thing is, you know, the first thing you get taught at journalism school, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, like <laughs> yes. as in, you know, the, you, yeah, the, yeah. the, the, yep. the, the gorier, the, mm -hmm. mo the more sensational, the yep. more salacious, yep. you know, the better, right? This is how people are going to – and often when it comes to – Sex crimes, mm -hmm. you know, more perhaps more than any other area, the yep. that gets lent into as you know a way to attract eyeballs and sensationalize things that shouldn't be sensationalized in the way that they are. Yeah, and so what it does is it dehumanizes everybody involved. So it that, exactly that sensationalism that you were just talking about. The the woman becomes sensationalized, so she's no longer a person that this has happened to with a life and a, and feelings and a family and and all these things are going to be affected by what's happened to her. She's either, a, a, she asked for it. She was out there being provocative and, and she was causing problems for herself or she's some Mary Madonna type who, you know, poor, poor angel that was wrong, hard done by. And again, nobody is either of those things. We are all far more complex. And again, we go back to the predator. He's either the guy in the balaclava waiting to jump out of bushes or he's the nice guy that either made a mistake or was wrongly accused. And none of these things are, are true. They are the lightning strike. It's always far more complex. So when you sensationalize the headlines like that, you are dehumanizing everybody involved. And so everybody is damaged by it. 
talk to me about the uh, the good bloke because that <laughs> seems yeah you know, like that often you know it'll be some case of someone who's murdered their family or something and uh, you know you suddenly realize the next day that he you know according to the headlines and the way it's being reported he was a good bloke though um, that one is actually one of the few that I'm finding some hope because it's it's getting better after um, we finally got Media Watch to do a thing about it. Um, I think it was last year. I haven't seen as much of it. But before then, it used to be if a man killed his wife and children, you could not find a news report about it that didn't include a quote from somebody saying, oh, but he was such a good bloke. He was such a loving father. He was such a good husband. Usually neighbours, sometimes family. Um, and again, I can understand how it all happens. I can I can see how it works for the journalists that you need a quote, you need to humanise it, you need to explain it. And this is what somebody genuinely said. But the point that was made on that Media Watch segment that we've been trying to make publicly for ages is that guy, like what I was saying before, could actually be a good friend and could actually be a good neighbour. And the fact that he waves at you when you see each other taking the bins out does not mean he's not then going in and abusing his wife. So the neighbour's comment of, oh, he seemed like such a nice guy, is just completely irrelevant. And what it's doing is saying, oh, good blokes kill their children, which I think we can all agree a man who kills his children is not a good bloke. I'd say it disqualifies you. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm, you get booted I'm, off the good bloke island. I'm sure there's a few people who met Hitler in art school who <laughs> thought he was a nice enough guy. But, you know, it's fair to say what he did post then yeah. disqualifies yeah. how nice he was at art school as yes, far as I'm concerned. Exactly. And it's it's that same thing. And, and it was also that unquestioned. Um, and journalism is a surprisingly conservative profession. You know, we like to think we're all out on the edge and, and, and calling truth to power and seeing things other people don't see. And sometimes those things are true, but the traditions of journalism have been nailed down for decades and it's very difficult to change them. Talk to me about the idea of representation and how much that affects how these stories are told. You know, is... Is some of this historical about because newsrooms were dominated by men and therefore the perspective of men is something that has been, you know, uh, entrenched in there? Do we report stories in a certain way because, you know, predominantly that industry has been fueled by people who've had a certain perspective and does representation change that or does representation just mean that people go into a system where those things are so entrenched that they start doing them in the same way? Um, again, the answer is somewhere in the middle. Uh, I think sometimes some of those things are true. So um, it's not even so much that it was male-dominated. It was that that male perspective on men's violence against women dominated the way everybody thought about it. So it's this weird chicken and egg thing with the media. Of The media is how we find out most of our information about the world outside our own immediate circle. So when that kind of language is used in news reporting, in popular culture, in um, radio, film, TV, all the kind of media we consume, those underlying presumptions are presented as if they're real. We don't notice them, so they constantly go on and then they reinforce each other. Um, so I think in that thing with the media that, yes, it was partly that that was the way everybody thought. That was partly because... It's easier for men if we all think that way. So that they, those patterns of behaviour, the things we saw with Me Too, the, the things that we know used to go on and still do go on, on the surface seem to benefit men, although I would argue they also harm them in significant ways as well. So that perpetuates itself. And if you go in and challenge it, it's 
then becomes so entrenched in the way that we do things. This is the way we write headlines about rapists. You know, you must have seen that the alleyway rapist, the Carlton rapist, the Tinder rapist, the Facebook rapist. No, he actually raped a woman. We never talk about the woman that he raped. Or if we do talk about her, she was flirty, she was drunk, she was out late at night, she was on a street, she was walking home. What did she do? So these are all the things that this is how it's always been done, so this is how we always do it. And gender um, gender in newsrooms is changing. More women are coming in, but they're coming into a very conservative workspace where that's how it's always been done. So trying to change it is difficult. It's not just, oh, we chuck a few women in the newsroom and this won't happen anymore. It's about challenging the the things that we don't think about. When we write this headline, when we call him the Facebook rapist or the Tinder rapist or the Carton Laneway rapist, why? And what does that say and what do we need to do when we call it, um, I mean, I don't know how dark we want to get here, but when we call it's, it child it's sex. A, it's a it's, podcast. We can talk about whatever we want. Okay. So if you're talking about, um, you know, all the reporting on the uh, sexual abuse of children by the clergy and they would call it child sex mm. as if sex is something that you do together consensually sex. with yes. somebody else and no so no child can have sex with an adult no. because sex requires consent abuse and rape requires no consent so when you call it sex you're you're kind of putting it in people's mind as oh something that they kind of contributed to now you're not directly saying it but you're implicitly saying it and this can get really difficult in when we're trying to get people to understand that no a 14 year old girl did not consent, even if she was flirting with an adult man, and a responsible adult man will look at a 14-year-old girl and go, she's a child. She's experimenting in the same way that, that boys experiment when they walk along fences and jump off things they shouldn't jump off. It's, it's a, a child trying to learn how to be an adult, and the responsible adult way of dealing with that is to say, stay safe, and here is, and explain to them, and let them give them a little bit of room and pull them back. So these are the things that I'm getting way off track there, but these are the things that in the media, the the ideas that play out in our lives are reinforced in the headlines that we see all the time and don't think about. And uh, what about sex work? Have you ch- seen that? So recently um, uh, there was an example of uh, an incident in Sydney mm-hmm. um, and, you know, even the focus of these, uh, you know, reports, mm-hmm. it became about the fact that some uh, – people had been heroic using chairs and that became the predominant sort of story was about these and don't get me wrong celebrate yeah uh, you know celebrate the fact that these you know people stepped in and stepped up and they grabbed chairs and i understand and save people's lives and i and i also understand how that's intriguing to people like i i I don't discount any of that and i don't even have a problem with you know the idea of celebrating the chair but the thing that came with that was it seemed to be overlooked that he, this man had murdered a sex worker on th- that same day. Well, he'd murdered a woman. Yes. And the fact that she was a sex worker overtook the fact that she was a woman, that she was a person. And that was the bit that I I wasn't surprised. I wish I was surprised by it, but I wasn't. Um, I think I get, the only thing that actually surprised me was that this time they remembered to call her a sex worker instead of a prostitute. So I... Well, it felt like... You know. even, I mean... Weirdly, I mean, and again, it's like it's celebrating a small amount of fucking progress isn't <laughs> yes. it, in that regard. Yeah. But do you see now, in the in the style of what your the work that you've been doing, that even if initially 
what happens is, yes, as you said, like, you know, he murdered a woman and that mm. got overtaken by the fact that people were more interested yeah. in the chairs and, and then the fact that and this woman a was worker. a sex worker, yeah. yeah, somehow diminished, like, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, she somehow has to have some responsibility yeah. for the fact or that she was murdered. Or she's less of a person. But yeah, it's less important that a sex yeah. worker gets ma- yeah, murdered yeah. than a than some other woman. Um, do you find, because the way that I saw it play out, was it being, yes, initially reported, but then there was a swing of people saying, hey, this he was this woman and here's what she did and let's – do you see both sides of that now where the initial, you know, traditional mm-hmm. way of doing it, there's at least people who are interested in examining that there's more to it or is that, am I just seeing a small, very small percentage and, and, and that's not indicative of the way that the debate goes? Um. I think those people have always been there objecting to that. So I remember when Tracy Connolly was murdered in 2012 and the way that was reported. Um, and there were people pushing back against it, but they weren't given much of a space. And I think, I don't think it's that more people are objecting. I think the same number of people are objecting and for the same reasons, but I think they are being given more of a voice and being more heard and more understood and their arguments are now more accepted than they used to be. So I guess that's progress. Well, I mean, slow progress, yes. like not, you know, um, uh, I want to get a sense of where you feel that we are at. What's the worst of what we're still doing? And, and what's our, like, you know, is, is there signs for hope? You know, you talked about the media, the, the, the media watch and the fact that, you know, once it gets to that level and Media Watch is doing, you know, the report mm. on it, that perhaps maybe it eventually starts to change things. Are you seeing change? Is there hope for positivity? What's the biggest issue that we still, you know, need to be dealing with on a daily basis? Um, oh, look, there's so many things. Um, I think, yeah, I think there definitely is change. I, I really did notice after that Media Watch thing that that good guy reporting to the extent that it used to happen doesn't happen as much anymore but I think maybe what's happening instead is is people are afraid to report on those things because they're not quite sure how to get it right so rather than get it wrong they just don't report it at all or they just go with that really straight hard news here's the facts this happened this happened this happened this happened next story um I think there's also um what somebody once called compassion fatigue about reporting on men's violence against women that Oh, no, we can't have yet another op-ed about this because everybody's heard about it one in three, one every week, blah, 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 and we're all getting bored with it. So people are saying, well, no, I can't publish another domestic violence article this week. And it's like, but another woman's going to die this week and another woman's going to die next week. And we don't know who she is yet, but I know another woman next week will be dead. So this is not something that we can get complacent about. Because um, there was the... I'm sick of I'm sick of hearing about it. Yeah, well, let's just stop doing it. Yeah, exactly. Let's stop it and then we can stop hearing about it. And the, the federal government put out their, their fourth, the fourth stage of the National Action Plan and in it they actually said they don't expect this to reduce. So they called it the long term, which was 10 plus years. No expectation that it will reduce for the next 10 plus years. And the reason they said for that is because gender equality has to change. And then you look at what the Morrison government's doing for gender equality and think, right, this is why you don't expect it to change for well forever, really. But it's not just about gender equality. There are so many other things. And to just say, oh, well, we won't have gender equality. We're not going to do anything about gender equality. Therefore, yes, another woman's going to die next week. Oh, well, so sad. Move on. I don't see how we can accept that. 
I don't see how we can accept, and it's not just about the one woman that's going to die. It's about the the thousands of a, a call to pol- to police in Australia every two minutes. It's about the hundreds and thousands of people who are living with this kind of violence, the children that are growing up with it, that are going to live the rest of their lives with the effects of it. I don't see how we can be complacent about this and say, well, it, we don't need to talk about it anymore because we've already had that conversation. We might have had the conversation, but if anything, it's getting worse, not better. Uh, I'm from a time where, you know, and it's it it feels weird to be old enough, <laughs> you know, to to you know to remember back to something. Mm. But certainly, when I first started out in journalism, you know, the, the, it was still of that era that where the police would be. It's mm. only a domestic. Yep. You know that they w- literally wouldn't. I oh, don't yep. worry about that. That's a domestic. You know, you'd hear it on the police scanner. Yeah. And we certainly yep. in the media would not cover those because they'd be considered. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just. The cost of doing business for women mm-hmm. living their lives is that that you know a domestic situation is is going to be written off by both the police and the media. So I have seen like clearly things have changed somewhat, but they they need to change so dramatically from where they are now. You know mm. what we're seeing is that incremental change isn't saving lives. Yeah, you know. So what do we do? Um- and this is where the, I think I think this is the reason that people are saying we can't have another story about this and maybe pe- because the audience isn't responding to it because I think it's a feeling of helplessness of, uh, yes, people will, it's not difficult to convince people that, that women and children being abused is a bad thing. Mm. You know, not terribly many people are going to argue against that. So, yes, we know it's a bad thing, but what can we do? And that's the step where people are finding it exhausting, that compassion fatigue. It's exhausting to keep reading about all these terrible things and not be able to do anything about it. So I think maybe it's kind of a self-protection thing of a certain point. You just go, okay, I'm not going to read about this anymore. But there are things we can do. There are absolutely things we can do right now. So, I mean, I could sit here for the next three hours and list them off. But just Well, one. here's what I will say. I, I want to hear more than one because okay. I think this is really important for people to hear. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an issue that they're facing with the climate as well. A lot of mm-hmm. the climate scientists are saying that, you know, there's a problem that if they tell people how bad it is, that a lot of people won't do anything because mm. once you like, well, what can I do about it? Yeah. Yeah. There's literally that point where you're like, well, I, I have no control over this. I think giving people things that they can do, giving answers to people to say, well, no, 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 no. Here are some things you can do is really important. So yeah. if you have some things, um, that, I, yeah, then I please, do. please um, share them with us. Like I'll, I'll just keep talking and you tell me when to stop. Cause honestly, okay. I'd go for a very long time on this. Well, I think um, the problem in our society <laughs> is men telling women when to stop talking. Jane, so yes. Okay. So don't tell me when to stop talking. Well, there we go. Problem solved. <laughs> you tell me, you tell me the solutions and I will mansplain them back to you. Okay. So one of them is, um, this argument that we have all the time about sexist jokes. Um, that, oh, hang on, how is there a connection between a sexist joke and murder and rape? Because I can tell a sexist joke and I would never, ever do such a thing. Mm. I can understand that connection. The problem is, and it goes back to that the not all men argument that people keep saying to me when I write, oh, not all men, not all men, and of course I know that. Mm. But I do know the one group of people who do think all men are like that, and that's violent men. So if you have, say, eight blokes at a barbecue. And statistically, if you know eight Australian men, you know a rapist. So let's say eight blokes standing around at a barbecue. One bloke makes a sexist joke. That particular bloke is not the violent man. Six other people who are listening to him are not violent men. One of the other men listening to him is violent. And all seven of them are either laugh along or don't say anything. That one violent guy that's listening to that joke thinks, you're all silent about this because you think like me. He knows that when he goes home and beats his wife, 
that none of he, – he doesn't go back and tell his mates about it. He stays silent about it. He makes sure she stays silent about it. He makes sure she is terrified and controlled and unable to go anywhere. So he thinks the other six blokes are like him. So when they all stay silent and act like he acts in the face of that joke, it reinforces to him that he's normal. And it's almost certain that those other seven blokes in that conversation would be horrified if they knew what he was doing to his wife and children at home. But they don't see it because, again, they think the guy that would do that, we would recognize him. He would be obviously evil. So that social dynamic, which goes on all the time, is so easy to change because you'd be that one bloke that says, oh, come on, mate. And the, the, guy, the, the guy that's abusing his wife, let's call him John. So John's sitting there going, oh, one, one bloke said, oh, come on, mate. And John will think to himself, oh, pussy whipped. Oh, he's just trying to suck up to his, because you know, he thinks the women can hear us. He's just trying to get laid. And then another bloke says, yeah, mate, not okay, not cool. And then suddenly he's got two blokes. And then the guy who actually says it goes, oh, yeah, shit, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry. Suddenly there's three of them. Now he's starting to realize that actually maybe the problem is me because now there's four of the seven of them, there's now four of them that have said what I think is not normal. Then he's got to start think, going home and thinking, well, I wonder what all the other seven blokes are doing when they get home. Are they doing what I'm doing? Maybe there is something wrong with me. Maybe I do need to, to get some help. And that it's a long, slow process. So this is not obviously going to happen in one barbecue in one night. But the difference between having his point of view constantly, constantly reinforced by silence, where he's looking at it, looking at the rest of the group growing, we're all doing the same thing because we're all silent or we're all laughing along and not challenging it. So we're all doing the same thing when other people aren't around to, oh, they're not all doing the same thing. They are disagreeing with me. Something's wrong. So that's on a personal level. On a, to go completely the other end on a structural level, I have a real problem with prison as a solution to domestic violence. Because the thing we know about people that are sent to prison, it takes a lot to get a bloke sent to prison, so you've got to have done something pretty bad, that the recidivism rate for people that have been in prison for domestic violence offences is huge because it's domestic violence. Most of the time is about um, fear and control. And so you send a guy to prison, he comes out, less money, less jobs, less access, having somebody had control over his life, so he's got to have more control himself, so he's far more likely to be violent. You sent him to prison and you've, in fact, made him more dangerous. You may have protected the woman that he was abusing while he was away, but the likelihood that he will go back and abuse her and abuse her even more, blame her for being sent to prison, or if not her, if she's finally managed to escape, okay, maybe you've saved her, but he finds the next one. So by putting men in prison and just saying, okay, do your two and a half years and then get out and off your fuck, we don't care, you're actually making them more dangerous, not less dangerous. So the things that we need to do structurally is say, okay, if men are being sent to prison for, so the main reasons that men go to prison is violence and drugs. To me, both of these are things that we don't just say, okay, we're locking you up and you do your time and then leave. It's, okay, we're going to take you somewhere to keep you away from the people that you are hurting, and then we're going to look at you and say, no little boy looks at adults and says, oh, when I'm as big as daddy, I really hope that I'm a drug-addicted, violent thug that beats the woman that loves him every night. Wouldn't that be a wonderful life? Nobody aspires to that. And I really believe now that most of the men that behave like this, they don't actually want to do it. They they do make choices, and that, that that's absolutely true, but... You can see it when they, when now that I've talked to more of them and had a better understanding of it, 
they they know it's making them unhappy and they know it's making the women and bizarrely enough that they do care about or feel awful but it's the only way they know how to live and not always true and again you know stalking the middle and sticky complexities here but this is true in a lot of cases so if you could take them to prison and say okay if you want it here are ways that we can help you become a person you actually want to be when you get out so with education learn how to drive a forklift learn how to run a library learn how to make a coffee learn how to pour a beer learn how to understand what you're actually thinking learn how to to recognize what you think of as anger as actually fear and how to deal with that without being violent here are some options for you so that when you get out you will actually be able to change your life if you want to isn't this part of what you were talking about before which is when we say that the people who do these things are all monsters mm. And we paint them as all being monsters. Yep. What it stops us from doing is being able to have honest conversations yes. around the skills you need. Because as you said, in a lot of those cases, and very much it, this, you know, particularly when you're talking about domestic violence, mm. you are talking about people who they didn't get together because he wanted mm. to bash her. Like, you know, as in like, you know, that has been, you know, it might be like, as you said, I'm sorry, I'm trying to uh, say this in the way that is, you know, it can make my point without trying to be insensitive around it, but is the idea that, like you said, they can be two people who are very much yeah. in love and no one has ever given those people the skills to go, hey, at this point when you two were arguing or it got to that point, there was another way of dealing with that that would have stopped you from getting anywhere near the escalation in your mind or your solution to this being violence. We don't get taught any of that because anyone who's going to behave like that is a monster yeah. and we don't acknowledge that any of us, if we don't have the skills to be able to negotiate things, could have that path inside us. Yeah. And it's, again, this is, you know, I, I would never want to create sympathy for abusive men. And abuse is far more than just physical. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of complex stuff that goes on in that. And I would never want to create sympathy for them. But I'm also aware that a lot of that need for control, which is where you can either use physical violence or fear or intimidation, you know, all kinds of things that, that abusive men do, but it's it's based on fear. It, the, the, you don't need to control something unless you're afraid of it. If you're not afraid of something, it's fine. It can do what it likes. And there is a particular way that, that men in, in domestic abuse focus on their intimate partners. They don't do it to their friends. They don't do it to their footy mates. They don't do it to their colleagues. They do it to their women. And there's a whole range of complex reasons for that, but it's about control and it's about fear. So if you can, and shame, I think, to a certain extent as well, shame about weakness, shame about um, all the complexities of being a man that men are told you're not allowed to have. You know, you're either allowed to be strong, ambitious, or um, lustful. And that's about the, the range of male emotions. And obviously that's not true. Men have the same complexity of emotions that women do. But that idea of being a man, particularly in Australia, I think, and particularly in certain parts of Australia, of how men deal with fear and all kinds of fears, insecurities about themselves, about their job, about their personal lives, about being a good father, a good husband, a good friend, all those, those fears that they feel are really difficult for men to talk about. And... So they, they subsume it all and they it tends to express itself as a need for control. And then when women push back on that and no, you can't control me, then you have to try harder and harder to control them. And that's where sometimes it ends up with physical violence. So sending that man to prison 
is not going to make him less afraid. It's going to make him more afraid. And it's not going to teach him to be less violent because there are very few places in the world as violent as men's prisons. So I don't think it's helpful. I I agree that sometimes it's necessary, but it's certainly not helpful. You know, I I think that we all acknowledge to a certain extent that hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. You know, that often when, you know, you see these patterns, you know, that it's come from someone being hurt in the first place and they pass that hurt Mm -hmm. forward. I don't think that it means that you you know, saying, I'm going to be sympathetic to this, but we need to understand how we can stop it from happening. Yes. And if we don't, like, that's our aim. Yes, Our aim exactly. is, let's stop this from happening. And if to stop it from happening, showing some empathy or sympathy or insight into mm. how we could get into someone's head or yeah. living room before it gets to the point where this violence is happening, then I just think if we don't do that, if the, we think that nothing's the solution, going to change. nothing is going yeah. to change. And, and I think- you can lock up... Every single person who yeah. does it and nothing's going to change. And you can keep screaming at, at men saying, stop doing this, men. And that's not going to work at all because most abusive men don't think they're doing anything. Most abusive men actually think of themselves as the victim. And they really believe that. It's it's a weird conversation to have and I've had it a few times now. And it took me a while to think, oh, no, you're not lying to me. You actually really believe what you're saying when you think that you are. I, I'm the victim. She pushed me into it. I didn't have a choice. I didn't want to do this to her. I love her. I would never hurt her normally. I just couldn't help myself that one time. And then you look at the hospital records and think, dude, you've been doing this for years, regularly. So, the again, the under, understanding it as, well, this is not just, we don't just lock them up um, or don't just say stop doing it. If that worked, then, you know, we would have been able to stop this problem decades ago. How do we intervene in the generational patterns of violence? Because I don't know what the stats are on this, but anecdotally and again that's a dangerous area to walk into when we're talking about this sort of thing but the the amount of people who go well this is how my father behaved therefore it's kind of been passed down to the next generation how do we how do we intercede in that how do we step in between so that the violence isn't passed on generationally um i think that's that's really important it's also important to say that often um well, that does often happen it's not always the case and there are plenty of men who because their fathers were violent have become the opposite. The opposite. Yeah. So we we see a lot of men as activists. Um, Jimmy Barnes' book, The Working Class Boy, uh, not so much working class man. I got a bit bored by that. I love Chisel, but reading about him being drunk all the time was not yeah. as much fun. But The Working Class Boy um, book, I thought, was a fascinating exploration of that intergenerational violence and how you learn it as a child without even knowing that that's what you're learning. So the you know the, Victoria is actually doing a good job of that of putting that respectful relationship education into schools and young schools, primary schools. I've got a, um, a mate who does this um, and goes into kindergartens and talks about it because it's not so much that one hour a week is going to change what kids are learning all day, every day when they're at home, but it's the idea that that most kids have of the what they grow up in is normal and they think, again, like the violent men, kids only ever see their own household, they've only ever seen their own parents' relationships, so they think that's normal. So to have somebody come along once a week, even for an hour, for 12 weeks and say, no, no, that's not normal. That's not okay. If you're going home and feeling scared, that's not okay. If somebody's doing something to you that makes you feel ashamed or hurt or worried or angry and you don't feel you can do anything about it, that's not okay. These constant lessons and, you know, if so, um, one of the things my friend was telling me about was um, little boys. I remember this with my own son and, and his mates, little boys, kinder age boys, up until about 
grade one or two are really affectionate. You know, they will hug each other and they will hug all their friends and their family and it it's, gets trained out of them, which I think is incredibly sad. But when they're little, very, very affectionate and she'll talk to them about, okay, does he want to be hugged? Does your friend want you to hug him at the moment? How do you feel sometimes when you don't want to be hugged and somebody, you know, talking about consent like that? And four-year-olds can understand that. Four-year-olds are old enough to be able to look at somebody and go, oh, no, he's he's pulling away from me. He's got a frown. His shoulders are down. He doesn't want me to hug him. So I'll just tell him that I love him instead of hugging him. And I've watched these conversations happen with four-year-olds, and it's beautiful. That would be such a game changer for a kid that comes from a violent house who's told implicitly that you never ever consider anybody else's feelings because the only thing that matters is how you feel. So there are so many things that we can do. Um, Parents groups that I've seen pushing school councils into getting people to come in to do this kind of education with their kids. These are all things that we can do in everyday life. You know, the the pushing for the big structural changes like how we deal with it as a criminal matter, how we deal with it as an economic at a federal government level, all that stuff does feel more difficult, although not impossible. But those, the things that we can do now to make changes in our own social groups and in our kids' lives, is actually really easy. How do you feel about uh, the role that, say, government advertising plays in this? Because in Victoria, where we are, uh, the government uh, uh, advertise around the idea of, you know, very much in what we were talking about mm. before, which is the, the mates making a bad, you know, a, a poor taste joke time to step in there's a prominent advertisement that plays a lot at the moment of you know somebody a guy who's creepily staring at someone on a train or a tram and someone takes a moment yeah. and intervenes i when i see those advertisements i never know 100 percent how i how i feel about that whether they that sometimes they feel a little insipid like they're not going far enough like they almost minimize the issue and then there's another part of me that's like well i'm glad that the government thinks this is an issue enough that they are doing something about what's your instinct when you see that sort of mm. government style communication around these issues? I have mixed feelings about it because I look at them sometimes and I know how much money was spent on each one of those ads. And I think I am talking to people running refuges who are turning women at risk of their lives, women and children at risk of their lives away because they haven't got beds for them. You know, for fuck's sake, can we not at least put people who are about, who are at risk of dying, can we not at least give them a home? You know, so there's there's that part of it. But I also do think, I actually thought that train one was good because that was such a, every woman I know just looked at that and went, oh, that's happened, yes, all the time. And that, that guy that steps up and stands in between, you almost never see him. The creepy leering guy, yeah. I mean, even at my age, I still get it. But I remember my at, at when I was young, when I was, I felt more vulnerable than I do now. It used to happen all the time and it was gross and intimidating and that's why we're scared of the guy walking behind us often is that that leery guy on the train or the tram because you don't know what he's going to do. And it's it's a constant reminder that, that men have the power to inflict this fear on you and because they usually choose younger women to do it who, who haven't always got the, the confidence to stand up and tell them to sod off, that having that guy just that really simple act of I'm just going to step in and break the line of sight so he can't do that and give him that look that says, hey, mate, I know what you're doing. Stop. I think that's actually a good thing. There was some, um, there was one of the group of guys sitting around in the pub and the guy gets on the phone and yells. And I was looking at that going, that never happens. That abusive guy doesn't make that phone call where all his mates can hear him. He leaves and goes outside to make it where they can't hear him and then goes back in and tells them all what a great guy he is and how his bitch wife is crazy. 
So that that one I had a lot more trouble with. And I think if they if they do it where they're actually talking to the, the people on the ground who are dealing with what's actually happening every day, which they obviously did with the train one, they've obviously gone back and said to women, what's a daily interaction that you have that's really creepy and come up with that one. I think that's worth it because it does remind the people like you who probably don't get creepy men leering at you on public transport terribly often or if they do you don't feel physically afraid that this happens all I'm the probably time. probably a bad example because like you <laughs> oh know, you probably do I'm get physical, people's I, and also I'm physically afraid of pretty much everybody <laughs> <laughs> but I understand the point you're trying to make yeah and it's that that if you see that 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 the fix is really simple. That just what he did of just step in between them and give him that look, what I was talking about before at the barbecue, of just say not okay, that can actually be a really powerful thing. I thought that was effective, but I have a problem with awareness raising while we haven't got crisis services and the, the we haven't got the services in prisons or in courts to say to men who are violent, here are some ways, some things that we can do to help you not be like this anymore. While we're not funding those two things properly, Awareness raising is great, but if that's all you're going to do, then don't expect me not to yell at you. I like that. That's a a, a great answer. The one that, uh, the the one thing that I, as you learn more about this, is that I think that it comes with a fair amount of, yeah. You know, so once you see, you can't unsee. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You know? Exactly. But it does leave you with a sense of guilt that you have gone so long without seeing sometimes and you know there's an acknowledgement that society is often set up to not like i mean if you're a white straight man you mm-hmm. know my age yeah like me it's very easy to think that life is fair because society is set up to not let you be aware of the privilege mm-hmm. that you have exactly right yeah once you see it you can't unsee it but it sometimes annoy it sometimes embarrasses you I'll give you an example. Just okay. from my own life, I'll give you an example of what I mean. I was woefully unaware and I know that there was times where women would say to me about, oh, I'm glad you're back because that guy was staring at me or that so-and-so mm-hmm. was blah, 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 where I, I wouldn't say that I didn't believe them, but you would certainly diminish mm-hmm. that you'd be like, I oh, mean, how, how... Yeah, come on. Come it's not on. that big a deal. It's like, you yeah. know, I was away for five minutes. What yeah. could have yeah. possibly, you know, like, you know, and... Then, of course, once you see, and once you see that that has been the example of, mm-hmm. you know, one, this is what the internet, to go back to social media, I think one of the great things about social media has been that idea of, um, it's not your friend that walks to her car with her keys in her hands. It's every second yeah. woman telling that same story. But also, story. I think the thing that, that I still think it's hard for men to, un- men to understand is it's, they go, oh, but that was one incident. And you're trying to say, well, the first time it ha- I remember it happening to me, I was 12. And I was sitting on a tram and this guy, on an empty tram, this guy came and sat directly opposite me and he would have been, you know, I don't know. He, to me, he's really old, so I don't know. Now, 40. 45. Yeah. <laughs> My age. And he was just on a completely empty tram, came up and sat directly opposite me and leaned forward and just stared at me. And I was absolutely terrified. I was too scared to move. And eventually I managed to, to stand up and walk, and I was, I could barely walk. I was shaking so much because he was so terrifying and all he did was stare at me. So what do you call, I mean, you can't call the police. He's looking at me, you know, you sound like a two-year-old, but he was staring intently at me. I was 12 years old in a school uniform on my own. And he was making it very, very clear that this was not just looking to see, you know, 
have I, I don't know he he was it was an obvious well, sexual it's hard, powerful it's, it's hard to know what like when yeah. uterus tried to come up with a reasonable excuse for an old man to come and stare at a 12-year-old girl on a train. One doesn't really spring to mind. No. So eventually I managed to get off the tram and he looked out the window as the tram took off and he was laughing. Mm. And I had trouble walking home. I was shaking so much. And that was the first time it happened to me. Now, I could not remember every single time it's happened since then. I can remember countless times of once when I used to wear high heels and some guy was grabbing my ass on the tram and I had my stiletto heels and started grinding my heel into his foot, which was, I think, one of the only times when I was younger that I did push back, but it was constant. So it's not just one incident. It's it's that still that memory of being 12 years old and being so frightened of it. And I'm a lot older now and a lot stronger now, and I'd like to see that guy try that shit on me now. But then again, he wouldn't because he would know exactly how hard that would be to get away with. So they, they do look for vulnerable women who, as I said, tend to be younger. But um, I think it's something like 75% of women who've experienced street harassment, it started before they were 15. So this is not just that it happens to us once. It happens to us for most of our lives. And it's a series of events. And they're all connected. They all build on each other to that to create that impression of, I am not safe and men can make me feel unsafe just by looking at me and there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, we have to start to finish. Uh, I like mm-hmm. to start to finish because it takes me a bit of a run up to actually uh, okay. finish it up. But what was your what was your hope when you wrote the book? What was your aim and intention with writing the book? Um, uh, to not fuck it up was the main one. Um, I I think I the reaction that I got from the fixed it thing when I was posting on social media when people talked to me about it. The the one they always say to me is, "Oh my god!" Until I saw what you do, I hadn't seen it. And now I see it everywhere. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And that, to me, is such a good reaction of that's why people are pushing back because now they're seeing it and going, oh, I understand what's underlying that headline now. Not cool. And I've seen people do it, like take their own pens to fix it or or go back on social media or emails and stuff to – there was one I was trying to do a fix on the other day on the ABC, which comes up horrifyingly often. And by the time I went to post it, it, they'd already fixed it because – that already changed the headline because so many people had complained. Now, that to me is is a great outcome, but what I was trying to do with the book was make the jump between just the, the picture that paints a thousand words on social media and explain why it was happening. What's the background? How did we get here? How did those traditions become embedded into journalism? Because it wasn't something that was chosen. It was something that happened. Why did it happen? How did it happen? What are the effects of it? Um, you know, I was saying about the, the media tells society what's going on and and often reinforces i don't know if they entirely create it but they certainly reinforce ideas that we already have those people go off and are members of juries you know so all these things are are connected they vote they join political parties there none of these things happen in isolation so i was trying with the book to draw the connection between the ideas that underpin those headlines and how that fits in with every other aspect of our lives uh, so who, small project. Really. Who do you? Well, I mean, have great grand ambitions. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful thing. I don't think that you know the idea of limiting your ambitions, and this is why I think this next question is one that I'm interested in asking you. Which is, firstly, who do you think will read your book, and secondly, who do you hope will read your book? Um, it was one. Of, I was at uh, Canberra Writers Festival on the weekend. It was one of the things I was thinking again. Um, panel about domestic violence, and looked out in the audience and went, "Yep." 95% women, 
And I said to the panel before we went up, I said, you know, the one thing that happens, said to the, the panel moderator, I ask now every time I do a panel, can you please make the first question from a woman? Because otherwise, every time I do a public event about domestic violence and we have questions afterwards, I can guarantee it. The first question will be from a man and his question will be, hi, I'm here. I'm a man. Can I please have a cookie for being here? And so she did get the first question from a woman. The second question was from a man saying, hi, I'm a man. Can I please have a cookie for Where's being here? Cookie? Yeah. Where's my bloody cookie? Yeah. And look, to, to a certain extent, now I'm getting to the point where I'm thinking, yeah, you know what? Maybe you do get a cookie for turning you're up. Here. Because you're here. Because none yeah. of the other men turned up. So why aren't men turning up to this? Because this is a man's issue. You know, the, this is all connected to the fact that, that 95% of the people in prisons in Australia are men. This, and that 95% of the violence that's committed is our men. That, and the violence that's committed against themselves, that men are so overrepresented in suicide statistics and in accident and injury. And they get cancer more often and, and addictions more often. That's this, why we deserve all... to be paid more for our work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bite me. Um, but these things are all connected and these things, and why aren't men turning up for this? Because this is actually their problem too. And so who I would want to read it, I would want men to read it. I would want men who want the world to change for themselves, for their sons and their brothers and their mates. I would want them to read it and take some action. I don't think they will, but that's what I'd love. Um, maybe if they won't, I think the people who who consume media regularly, um, who consume mainstream media. I think that that's what we see with Clem's books. And by the way, I've read them both and I, I can barely find a controversial idea in them. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. I, I do not understand so much of what she says, mm. I believe is just common sense. Yes. yes. Some of it is couched provocatively, but I find that exciting yeah. personally. Like I think she's a, you know, provocative communicator and I love that. Yeah. I, I think she's a incredible intellect and I, I love the way that she, will throw an idea out there and, you know, really provoke you to make you think about it. And I think that is um, nothing but to be admired. And And look, Clem's a mate of mine as well as a colleague and I respect her professionally and love her personally. So, but we're doing different things. That's yes. So that, I guess that was going to be my stepping point was this is not in any way, because I think those books are fantastic. Yeah. But there are some people who are never going to read those books as much as they should. Yeah. I made my son read both her books. And I bet your son wasn't blown away by any pr- too many provocative um, ideas, hopefully. Uh, look, I don't know about getting her over again because he's saying he wants to talk to her about it. I'm thinking, oh, God, no, no, just don't. Um, but, but your book has an in here, I think, that Clem's books don't in a way, which is there is an element of it. If you are interested in media, if you're mm-hmm. interested in the way that the media works, there's an in there, I think, to connect with people that then opens another door. Yeah, and I think also that, that as I said, I was trying to also connect it to politics, to sport, to social media. And my God, writing a sport chapter was so hard because I'm the least interested in sports person you'll ever meet. But anyway, I got it done. But um, Clem, as I said, I, I love her and we've talked about this a lot that I don't, we don't see ourselves as, as working in competition. We see it as complementary writing, that, that the people who read her work and read my work are know twice as much or squared as much because we our work complements each other and it's it's about understanding more about the world you live in and the world that you see every day and the things that actually affect us the most which is you know you talk about get another rabbit hole to dive down but politics the things that actually affect us day to day are state politics not federal politics but we don't pay much attention to state politics it's the the things we don't pay attention to that we should 
that affect our everyday stuff and media I'm not just talking news, but um, music, TV shows, movies, magazines, advertising is to me is all part of the media. And that affects us every single day. Um, I talk about um, for a talk I did once at the Wheeler Centre and I live in St Kilda. So it's like a 20 minute tram trip. And just for this talk, I was counting how many sexualized images of women I saw just sitting on the tram between St Kilda and the city and got to 100 by the time I hit the CBD and went, Maybe it's just a bad day. I'll try it again next time I come in. The next time I got to 110. And then I was suddenly going, oh, my God, it really is everywhere, isn't it? But I I was shocked because I wasn't seeing it because you just blank it out after a while. You're so used to it. it particularly the effect of advertising. I yeah. mean, you know, we, we talk about this a lot on Gruen, which is mm. that when we started doing the show a dozen years ago, the industry rule of thumb was you saw 3,000 commercial messages a day mm-hmm. just by walking around. Yep. 3,000 messages, but you're not acknowledging in your mind that you're seeing you 3,000 yeah. messages. You just get to the point where it just passes yeah. you by. So then to specifically concentrate on how many of those messages are sexualized or mm. how many of those messages are violent or how many, mm. many of those messages reinforce men as being heroic and mm. women as being, you know, because the, Weak it, and doesn't, passive. it, it doesn't yeah. have to be some woman in her underwear being mm. sexualized. It no. can be some woman yeah, have, being the cleaner in the yeah. house with the cleaning yeah. products so that yeah. are reinforcing traditional stereotypes. Or the fact that the only women you ever see are pretty 22-year-old white women who look straight and no obvious disabilities. And that's what pretty women look like, you know. And that idea that, again, you don't even know that you're seeing it until you start looking for it. And then suddenly, my God, it's everywhere. It, I guess that's our hope, right? I guess our hope is that people start to see things. Mm. Yeah. Because that's the first step. Yeah, Because you can't do anything about it unless you're seeing that it's there in the first place. You can't change a problem you can't recognize. Uh, Okay. So it's a brilliant book. I highly recommend it. It's called Fixed It. Mm -hmm. Um, It it will be available by the time you hear this podcast uh, in all good bookstores and, well, just where you find books these days. That's pretty much where books (laughs) are, where you find books. Now, there are some standard questions, Jane, that uh, are unbook-related that are okay. always answer, asked on the podcast. Okay. So you now, uh, the, this is how we finish. See, this is where I should have done some preparation, right? No, it's okay. I I like. I don't think these are any of these are questions that you shouldn't be able to answer off the top of your head. What do you think happens when we die? <laughs> um, I think we just stop. Yeah. You don't have any religious belief or yep. any over like spiritual belief. You don't no. think that we no become energy or turn into waterfalls or no i i have a kind of slightly bemused respect for people who think like that but no i i think that's it we're all just chemicals and we just stop uh do you think about death is death something that uh you know is present in your mind yes um i've had a lot of personal experience with it so it's it's always been present for me so the only thing i think about it is because i do think we just stop is make sure you get everything done before i stop I'll make sure I get everything done before I stop. Well, I guess that actually uh, answers what the next question was, is your idea of death, does it define how you live? And at least in that regard, it does. Yeah. So personally and professionally, um, as part of the reason for writing this book was was all this work that I've done, leave something concrete behind. And personally, to make sure, it's the thing I do with my kids because of death is every time I leave the house, even if we've had a fight, make sure the last thing I say to them is I love you because there's nothing worse than that. Oh God, the last thing I said to her was, well, fuck you then. And that's your last memory of someone. So I, I do and always have made sure as much as I can 
that the last memory they have of me is saying I love you. When people speak of you, uh, what would you like them to say? Now, this is not what do they say. <laughs> what, what would you like people to say about you when they speak of you? Um, uh, she was more interesting than she thought she was. If people have a misconception about you, what is it? Um, I don't know. There are possibly that I think people who don't know me that I don't think in those complexities we were talking about before because I was quite I used to be quite radicalized with the feminism stuff and I um I'm not ashamed of that at all I'm proud of it in fact but I think possibly people think I'm more radical and more conservative at the same time than I am. There was a TV show called uh, uh, Heroes. It was about superheroes and mm -hmm. they all had special powers. And mm -hmm. one of the villains, his special power was he could kill somebody and take their superpower. So he would essentially... <laughs> yeah, I, I watched yeah, the show. Yeah? Loved okay, it. you remember yeah. this? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah okay, I love that good. show. So I'm going to ask you that question. If you could take a superpower from anyone, what, what would the superpower that you would love to have? Um, I would love to be able to give other people the ability to have empathy, to to have other people be able to feel what the people around them are feeling because I think that's that's one of the biggest problems that we have in creating change is creating empathy. I have a time machine. I don't. But it's, <laughs> I was it's, going to say, really? Yeah, wow. But it's the final question. It's <laughs> the final question of the podcast. Uh, you get one free return trip. You can go to a moment in history, observe or change it, or you can go to a moment in your own life and observe or change it. Uh, which do you do and, and what would you like to do with my time machine? Um, that's a difficult one. The, the moments in history, I think there's too many to choose from um, and you'd never know whether you made things better or worse. So I think I'd leave that one alone. But in my, for me personally, I was offered a cadetship at the age when I was in year 11 and I listened to my mother who said, no, finish school first. And I didn't get the, I didn't get it the next year. So it took me another 20 years to come back to journalism. I think I'd go back and say for this one time, ignore your mother, but when you get the cadetship, don't fuck it up. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing the show. It's, uh, Thank you for it's having me. It's really been really nice to fun. get to know you. I, yeah. I hope you've enjoyed it. I, yeah, have. I definitely it. have. And uh, the book's fantastic and I highly recommend it. People thank will you. have heard my blurb at the start as well. <laughs> but uh, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Will. 